Okay, the story begins. We're on the second part of chapter 4 of Tanya, page 67 on the bottom. So just to recap where we've been holding last week. We discussed that a soul means intellect and emotions. Those are the ba- that's basically what a soul is uh, comprised of. A soul is basically comprised of how I think, how I feel. Hello. Then we I said, good, I think. How are you? I think I feel good. <laughs> While you're walking. May I get some TV for Yeah, yeah, go for it. Go listening, for, yeah, yeah, go for it. Go for it. Then we said the soul doesn't just, beyond what the soul is, how it thinks and feels, there's what the soul does. We referred to the garments of the soul, thought, speech, and action. It's behavior. The garments of the soul, the soul's behavior, the intellect and emotions of the soul kind of come hand in hand. Just like a body dresses, is dressed by garments, feelings are dressed by action. And when my feeling propels action, that's a perfect uh, combination, that's perfect merging. In order for a relationship to be genuine, there has to be feelings there, right? But if the relationship just has feelings, with no action, it's also not genuine. A genuine relationship is the same inside and out. Feelings, action are, are, are kind of, are kind of related, are, are not related, but, but go hand in hand, sorry. Now, the second part of the chapter, the author of the Tanya says something novel. And this is on the bottom of page 67. He says, on the bottom bold paragraph, Now these three garments, referring to thought, speech, and action, when devoted to the Torah and its commandments, although they are referred to as mere garments of the core soul, the nefesh, ruach, neshama, three levels of the soul, nevertheless, on page 68, they are of an infinitely greater level and quality than the actual soul itself. Although your thought, speech, and action, although your observance of mitzvot, are just garments of the soul. It's actually greater than the soul itself. Any thoughts on how to, how to explain that and what that means? In other words, the clothing that you wear are better than you. That's basically what it's saying. Just like clothing are greater, there's an advantage to clothing over its wearer. There's an advantage to behavior in our relationship with God rather than just our feelings in our relationship with God. Any, idea, any explanation as to why? Any thoughts? How you act can change the world um, in a good or a bad way. Okay, good. How you act is more impactful. How you feel about the world versus how you act in the world makes a big difference. Okay, good. You can't see your insides. We can only see what you do outside. Okay. So it's, you know, the garments are... can see your inside, but people can't. Okay, yeah, good. Garments are, are something that we can, are, are, are more observable. Any thoughts? Well, actions are much stronger than thoughts. Okay. Because an action is something that takes more, I mean, stronger belief. Takes more belief to do than to feel. Right. Agree or disagree? Say that again, Zach. Actions require more strength than... Thought. Mm-hmm. Than thought. It takes more courage to do than just to feel. Well, you have to think right. about your actions. 
So it's like you got double work to do. It's a choice. You just think, right. but in order to act, you got to think about what you're doing. So you're thinking and thinking, thinking about thinking. One <laughs> <laughs> involves more to do an action than a thought, because an action is the physical manifestation of the thought. Of the thought, or of the feeling. Okay, good. I, I like the direction we're going here. Could I ask you one question on page sixty-nine? Yeah. Um, it's in, I can't find it, that in one place in the Torah it says, you know, we'll have God, you know, as being great, and the next one is God's humi humility. Humility, okay. Why does God have to be? Why does God have to be humble? Right. Okay, good question. We're going to get there. We'll get there okay. soon, as, as the class unfolds. Hold on to that thought. We'll, we'll build up there. But before we get there, you can have a... Homeless person, dressed in a nice suit, nice tie, goes in for <laughs> no worries. He goes in for a job She's interview. He's having a rocket start. <laughs> Tough day, Judy. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> he comes in to this interview. Seems very confident. He looks put together, and they're inclined to hire him. Little does he, do they know his background. His background's irrelevant. He's giving off a good impression, right? On the other hand, and, and he's going to feel like a million bucks, right? How's he going to feel about himself? On the other hand, you could have somebody who's Harvard-educated, but is roaming around the streets of San Francisco with a shopping cart. And the education and the feelings, we don't, it, all that doesn't matter. I mean, it matters that he has it with him, but clothing bring us up, they also can drag us down. They can bring us further than where we can get on our own. That's basically where I'm getting at. Clothing, just in a physical sense, bring us further than where we can get on our own. And it's the same with spiritual clothing. Behavior can get us further than where our intellect and emotions can get us. Similar to what you guys were saying. A feeling is a feeling, but a, a, an action is very impactful. An action requires intent. An action can get us much further. Um, think about any relationship. What's a healthier, a healthier relationship? Focusing on how I feel about the relationship or focusing on what I do for the relationship? Oh. What I do for the relationship. But the, they're both important, but which one is more, which one surpasses which? What you do for the relationship. Right? Focusing on what I do for the relationship is much more important than how I feel about the relationship. How I feel about the relationship is just the motivation to do for the relationship. So it's the same with our relationship with God, right? As King Solomon in his book Song of Songs describes the relationship with God as that of a marriage. It, we can very much get caught up in how we feel and how we think, right? But the garments are much greater. The behavior, rather than my feelings, are, are much more solid and much more grounded. Make sense? Behavior, mitzvah, mitzvah is referred to in Kabbalah as ratzon, as will, as God's will. So there's how I think about God, there's how I feel about Him, but then there's the will. And will is a lot more objective. Just like clothing 
encompass you, surround you, will, your will to do something, you know, your, your, your intellect is in your mind, your emotions are in your heart, where's your will? So you're saying mitzvah can be will? It's God's rather will. Rather than, well, nor, usually it's translated as command. It's, it, but why is God commanding it? Yes, because God wants us to do that. Yeah, exactly. Now, where is, your, where is will located? If, you're, if your mind, sorry, if your intellect is in your mind, your emotions are in your heart, where's your will? Combination. Close-ish. Your will doesn't have any specific organ. Your. It's you. It's you, right? But I mean, the relationship through fulfilling God's will is not just how I think about him and how I feel about him. It's not just a specific. You're getting him. That's what I mean. It's it's you need everything. You you're getting God. everything. That's why the Baal Shem Tov used to say that when you grasp the essence of something, you really grasp. When you grasp a part of the essence, you grasp the whole thing. You get God's will. You get them all. Whereas when I, my focus is just on how I feel about him, how I think about him, how I understand him, how I appreciate him. I'm getting little bits and pieces limited to my perception. Make sense? I think it's an incredible paradigm shift that the Tanya is providing here. Feelings in a relationship are just the engine. The relationship itself is the behavior. Right? The actual mitzvah, the actual deed, that's the bond. The word mitzvah means commandment, like you said, Cheryl. The word mitzvah also in Aramaic can be translated as connection, as a bond. When we do a mitzvah, or even just being commanded to do the mitzvah, we're being bonded, we're being connected. The feelings, the intellect is how I feel and appreciate that connection. So now it doesn't become, it becomes part of who I am, not just something I do. Let's take a look on page 69. Uh, the first bold paragraph, it's a long paragraph. And while, he says, while the blessed Holy One is called throughout Kabbalah Ein Sof, no end, God is endless. His greatness can never be fathomed. And here's the line that I'm getting at, quoted from the Zohar. No thought can grasp him at all. So how I think and feel about God Connecting to God merely with my soul powers to think and feel, intellect and emotions, is very limited because no thought can really grasp him. What could a thought do? Make you think about it. I could think about him, but I can't actually get him. I can understand, I can appreciate my perception of him. In other words, so look at, you could take this line and rip it apart very slowly. No thought can grasp him. Which means to grasp him, you need something deeper than thought, higher than thought, higher than intellect and emotions. Well, why would you do mitzvot if you don't grasp him? I mean, if you don't grasp him, you have an understanding, so why would you do it? That, that's the point. The way you are, you are grasping him. It's not your thought that's grasping him. You need more than your You need more than your thought. You need something else. You need something more than that. Thought alone can't grasp him. You need something beyond Thought alone will be how you understand him. It won't actually be him. Which, by the way, again, a very useful tip 
I think, in, in interpersonal relationships, um, you know, they, they say in, in counseling, I'm finishing up this degree in marriage and family therapy, and one thing they, they, they cite in the textbooks in counseling is, you know, you're counseling a client an hour a week, and they're telling you all their deep, dark secrets, their history, and you feel like you know them, and you're making all these judgment calls. So, wait a minute. You've spoken to them, but you know one hour a week of their life. <laughs> That's all you know. <laughs> you don't really understand their past. You don't really understand their aspirations. You don't really get them. You, you only, feel like you get them. You only get what they're willing to give. You only get what they're willing to give, and you only get what, they're, what you understand of what they're willing to give. So but you that's get, your training, is to, in an hour, be able to decipher what, they're really, what they really mean. It's a very dangerous thing, because I'm deciding what this person should do in their relationship, what this person should do with their kids, with, and it's like I know one little sliver of their life. That's with a human being. Now imagine with God. I'm passionate about God, I think about God, I'll even learn about God, and I'll study His Torah. But if I'm just relying on how I feel, my mind and heart... I'm, I'm getting a sliver. No thought can really get him. I'm getting just a sliver. If I were to... I, I need something else to get him. I could get him. But it's not going to be with thought alone. It has to be something deeper than that. Let's take a look on our, on our sheets here. Text 2. It's a very short one. <laughs> Text 2 on our sheets. It's a, an excerpt from the Lachadodi. The prayer that we say welcoming the Shabbat. Beautifully written poem. And one of the lines in the poem says, That which is last in action is first in God's thought. But uh, um, in Kabbalah, there's a, there's a deeper way to understand this line. And it, it makes more sense in Hebrew, but we'll try our best in English. That which is last in action is first. In other words, precedes thought. Behavior is actually rooted in a deeper source than thought. In other words, when you want to do something, so, so first I, I printed out these papers. Before I printed out these papers, I didn't just print out the papers, I thought about it, right? I thought that I'm going to need these papers, but what motivated that thought? my will to print them out. So I wanted to print them out. I thought about printing them out. I actually printed them out. So the fact that I actually printed them out is a manifestation of a will that is deeper than thought, that preceded thought. And thought was just part of the process. So the will comes first? The will comes first. Although it's expressed last, right? The, it, it says in, in Kabbalah, that the beginning is wedged in the end, the end is wedged in the beginning. So although action is the end, it's actually a manifestation of that which take, took place in the beginning, which is the will. Now let's plug that into our, to our relationship with God. Are we following with me? We're all in the boat here? Okay. Let's plug this into our relationship with God. I do a mitzvah, whatever that mitzvah may be, whether it be giving charity, whether it be praying, lighting Shabbat candles, whatever of the 613 we're going to choose. What motivated that mitzvah in a perfect world? I thought about it. What motivated those thoughts? I felt passionate about it. 
I felt some sort of interest. What motivated that interest is I understood it. But what motivated that is I wanted it. Because God wanted it. That action at the end is a manifestation of God's will deeper than where my own feelings can take me. Make sense? Again, all of this is just to express the idea that feelings are, and perception is very limited. If my whole relationship with God and with Judaism is just my perception, it has to be integrated within my perception. But if that's all I'm relying on, just like that therapist, I'm getting a very limited slice. There has to be more. God is not, God created the notion of intellect and emotions. So how can intellect and emotions actually encapsulate him? Right? The only way you can really encapsulate him is doing what he wants. And that's why garments are greater than its wearer. That's why behavior is greater than intellect and emotions. Make sense? Okay. And thoughts, comments, controversy. Well, if you don't have thought and you do a behavior, there's no meaning to the behavior. There's no meaning to you to the behavior of, of the behavior. Behavior still might be meaningful. Right, but if you're doing it just because you're doing it, it has much more of a limited effect than if you do it with because you have behavior that there's. There might be reason. no meaning, but there's still a purpose. In other words, somebody were to to buy their spouse flowers, and they just do not get it. They just don't get it. They do not like flowers. They think it's ugly. They think. There's still meaning behind it. Their spouse wants flowers. Now, if they felt passionate about giving their wife flowers, that would be even better, right? 100%. But if they don't feel passionate about it, that doesn't mean they shouldn't give it. That make sense? Yeah. What about um, someone who can't control their behavior or has challenges in controlling their behavior, like those who are identified as being impulsive? How is that dealt with? Like, they don't always think before they act because something gets in the way of that. That's a very good question. This question always comes up when I teach this. I don't know where to draw the line. Somewhere there is a line. I mean, look, there's, there's a gray area. At some point, it's hard to exercise self-control. But then there's a point where you can't exercise self-control. Where do you draw the line? You know, Pharaoh, Pharaoh didn't want to set the Jews free. God tells Moshe, I'm going to harden his heart. God hardens his heart, yet still holds him accountable. How is that fair? God explicitly says, I'm going to harden his heart, and he's not going to set you guys free. I'm and then God holds him accountable and punishes him for not setting us free. How is that fair? So the commentaries explain... While his heart was hardened, his mind was still open. He still had a brain. He could have made a choice. Impulsively, he wanted to not let them free, but he could have still made a, po a choice against their impulse. We don't have to follow our impulses, bottom line. Um, the proof is, you have people that are impuls impulsive, and, and they'll, they'll get counseling, they'll get training. There's a reason why counseling works, because you, you can change. We can exercise self-control. Later on in chapter 12, 
He elaborates on this idea, chapter 12, 13, 14, and a great deal, that basically the mind rules the heart. That's the rule. Even in the most emotional situations, as soon as I get to my right state of mind, I'll be in control again. I was listening to a rabbi teaching that chapter, and he gave a, what I thought was a great analogy. It was, a, it was his personal life experience. He said he's, he's, he was in, his, in the car with his wife. She had to run into the store to get something. He's waiting inside the car in the parking lot, and he's reading a book. He's reading Psalms, catching up on, on his prayers that he fell behind earlier. And a mother comes out of the store with her child. Child did something he probably shouldn't have. She starts yelling at him. Uncontrollably, I told you not to. You know, we, have, we all seen the scene. <laughs> you know, yelling at her kid, not realizing that she's in public. He's, his, eyes, his eyes peek up. You know. <laughs> the eyes peek up. She notices his eyes. He wasn't judging, it's just he heard noise. He, she notices his eyes and she immediately calms down. Her son did something wrong, her child did something wrong. She's yelling at him. Whether that's appropriate or not, whatever, that's not the point here. She noticed him and she stopped. Why? Somebody was watching. Somebody yeah. was watching, she was thinking. She wasn't just feeling. Before somebody was watching, she was just feeling. She, there was no control. As soon as she was thinking, she was able to gain control. And that's why the Zohar, and it's elaborated on, in, in chapter 12, says that the mind rules the heart. As soon as we're thinking, we can gain control. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Um, if somebody has a real mental illness and they're at a point where they can't be held accountable, they can't be held accountable. I, I don't know how to draw that line. Um, I, in other words, I don't know if the line... I don't know if the Torah and the DSM have the same lines. I don't know. Right, that's what, like, was, if, I, I don't is know there if any, like, reference to, like, you know, for someone who may be challenged that way? There, there is. It, it, I mean, the idea in, in halacha and Jewish law that somebody who is mentally disabled, I don't know how halacha defines it. I don't know what the definition is. Um, but there is, a, there is a line, somewhere the line is drawn, where this person can't be held accountable. But if somebody's not beyond help, you know, even Pharaoh is not beyond help, was held accountable. So I, I, I don't think Torah necessarily has the same lines as DSM or vice versa. <laughs> as the, as, but it's a good question. It's a great question. I don't know how to answer it, though. <laughs> so back, back to your question, Zach. On page 69, quoted from the Talmud, where you find the greatness of God, that's where you find his humility. God is so vast, God is so great, yet he's so humble. How is he humble? He says, you can connect to my greatness through a mitzvah, through an act, through a word of Torah. I'm going to take my vast, unlimited self and allow you to be able to grasp it physically, to embrace it physically. That's very humble of God. What king does that? What king, what dignitary, what celebrity even, says, come here and give me a hug? <laughs> no way. You want my autograph? You're going to pay thousands of dollars. <laughs> but God says, no, I'm going to allow you to embrace me. 
whether it be through giving charity, whether it be through studying Torah and mentally embracing God, which we'll talk more about next week, whether it be through other physical activity that God, through connecting to His will, again, will is Him. There's no specific organ for will, right? The heart, the mind, that's a very specific. But the will, there's nothing specific about it. You're getting Him. And God is so humble by doing that. Where you discover His greatness, you discover His humility. Another interpretation to that, to, that, uh, to that line. When you think and appreciate and understand how great God is, again, that's Him being humble. You're only seeing a sliver of Him. <laughs> There's so much more. I have an off-topic question. Um, is there anywhere in the Tanya where we refer to the God in the feminine form, the Shekhinah, like the feminine aspect, or is it all him and he? There is. There is, yeah. Or maybe in Orthodox Judaism. No, the Shekhinah exists in Orthodox Judaism. Well, the, the, God is referred to as both feminine and masculine. Um, it's all contextual. Again, the relationship with God is neither male or female. Right. Um, but they specifically dwell. It's specifically it's used different. So the, yeah. the context in this, rela this relationship, the context of the relationship is, in Tanya, is usually God is either a father, a loving father, a husband, in which the context were the female, he's the male. It's all contextual. There are contexts in which God is referred to as, as in, the, in the feminine, as a female. But not in Tanya. Even in, in Tanya, not, so, not, not necessarily in this section of Tanya. But yeah, there, definitely. It's a good question. It's a good question. So to compare and contrast, just to, just to clarify, to simplify, there is the behavioral part of the relationship, the observance of Torah and mitzvot. There is the emotional, intellectual side of the mitzvah. The garments, the soul itself. And this is what I like to call the essential connection, that's behavior, and the experiential connection. That's the intellect and emotions. One is essential. You do a mitzvah, you are connected. One is experiential. You are connected just because you experience it. But if you don't, if you don't experience it, you're not going to feel that connection anymore. It's very limited. The essential connection is objective. It's the same by everybody. So when you eat matzah on Passover, when I eat matzah on Passover, when the greatest of sages eat matzah on Passover, when Moses eats matzah on Passover, it's the exact same thing. When we study Torah and Moses studies Torah, when we it, we're all doing the same exact thing. It's essential, it's objective, it's will. It's not specific, it's all the same. It's all encompassing. Compared to how we feel about God, how much we appreciate Him, how passionate we are about Him, that's going to vary from person to person. Right? There's however many million Jews there are, that's how many different perceptions there's going to be and, and, and levels of passion there's going to be. Everybody's going to be different. It's subjective. Um, so which one is more unifying, by the way? 
when we all come together as Jews and celebrate our Judaism, which approach, the essential connection or the experiential connection, which one's going to be more unifying? Experiential. Experiential is going to vary from person to person. But the essential connection is going to be the same. In other words, if we all come to the synagogue and we're all saying the same prayer, we're all reading the same Torah, we're all objectively united, even if we don't feel we're on the same page. Whereas if our Judaism is limited to how we think and feel and how we appreciate it, and it's going, it, it is important to think and feel about our Judaism, 100%. But if, that's, if, that's the, if it's limited to that, there's going to be um, separation among people. There's how I feel, there's how you feel, there's how you understand it, there's how I, it's not objective, it's subjective. Make sense? But if the group's going to be objective, they all have to have the same thought pattern. And I could come here and say the prayers with everybody else, but that doesn't mean it's objective. Everybody's going to have different thought patterns, and that's fine. There's an essential connection, and everybody's going to integrate it emotionally in a different way. I mean, everybody has their personality, and everybody's personality is going to connect to Judaism differently. You know, some people are, are more inspired by, by love, by passion. Some people are more inspired by, by fear. And they, you have certain people in Judaism that thrive off. What does God not want me to do? <laughs> you have people that different personalities. You have different personalities. People are like, there's, everybody's going to be different. Everybody's going to be different. But there's one area where we're all united. When we give charity, we're all the same. We're all doing it the same. Just like Moses did. When we keep the Shabbat, just like Moses, we're all objectively the same. It's, it's unifying. Again, all of this just to express how garments are greater than its wearer. Just like will is greater than intellect and emotion. Same idea. It encompasses it. it. It drives it. This give, this sheds light on an incredible, I find incredible, eye-opening um, quote from the Sages of the Mishnah, page seventy-two, the bottom bold paragraph. This explains. Why the Mishnah teaches, better is one hour of repentance and good deeds in this world than all of the life in the world to come, in the world that is coming. One moment of, of repentance, of teshuvah, of good deeds in this world is better than the entire paradise, heaven. Why? Because one moment of good deeds in this world is an essential connection. I'm connecting to what God wants. But when I go to paradise, when I go to heaven, I'm just experiencing God. It's about how I understand Him, how I feel Him. Which one is a greater connection? The actual one. The actual one. Yeah. Now, the best would be the best of both worlds. That's really what we want. 
We want the actual connection, the essential connection, and we want to feel it. Yeah. That would be the best of both worlds. And that's when Mashiach is going to come, when heaven comes down to earth and the two worlds uh, merge and meet. But until then, hopefully soon, going to heaven, and, and I, I think this is where Christianity and Judaism really differs. In Christianity, the whole purpose of Christianity, two steps. Number one, stay out of hell. Number two, go into heaven. How do I get into heaven? I was speaking to a lady who was a, she considers herself an ex-Catholic. And she said that she was in Catholic school as a little girl. And the nun would threaten them that if you misbehave, she writes your name on the board and you're sentenced to hell. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> Yeah, I went, I went to a Catholic school one time to teach about Judaism, and they blatantly told me I was going to hell because I wasn't Catholic. Yeah. They wanted to know about Judaism, but they blatantly told but they, me I was going to hell. Interesting. Yeah. So, so in Judaism, we, we do believe in heaven and hell, not in the same way that Hollywood understands it or that Christianity understands it. We'll talk more about this in chapter 7 or 8. Heaven and hell, reward and punishment, is one of the foundations of our faith, but it's not the focus of our faith. The focus of our faith is the action, and the reason is, going to heaven is just an experience. And an experience is subjective to the individual. Which means you're just getting a little slice, just like that therapist, you're getting a little slice of God. But, the action is getting God himself. So we all have many more years here to fill ourselves with more action, more mitzvahs. Yeah. So that, you know, we have the experience opposed to going to heaven and having that very small sliver. Yeah. So it's our opportunity really here yeah. on earth. Yeah, exactly. Ashley texted me yesterday. She's taken a, a college class in, in sociology called Death and Dying. And in the middle of class, she texted me, what's the Orthodox view of hell? Like, do Orthodox Jews believe in hell? So I told her, you know, my understanding is it's not a physical place, but you have, it's a process to work out all the things that you've done, your sins, and then you transition. But yeah. it's not... It's, it's like called the, purgatory because it's, it's purging. Sho, is it Gehenna or Shoel? It's yeah. the either name? Yeah. Yeah, so, so I'm texting her like in the middle of class. <laughs> I don't know who she was talking to because she has a very um, interfaith class. And she actually was talking about... She actually taught the class. If, if you like, I'll send you some sources if you that like. That would be great. I'll yeah. give them to Ashley. That I'll, would be if you remind me, I'll, I'll be happy so, to email you. Yeah, so she's really ingrained in this class where they're teaching all different... Um, I want to go like audit her class. <laughs> I'll, I'll remind me after That'd class. I'll, I'll I'll send you an email with with some stuff that I that I have. So there was a great sage, Rabbi, um, the same time period as the author of Tanya, the Alter Rebbe, known as the Vilna Gaon. Gaon means genius. Vilna was the town that he lived in. He was the head rabbi there, and he was very prestigious. The Vilna Gaon had a strong relationship with the Alter Rebbe. <laughs> The author of Tanya. Not a good relationship, but a relationship nonetheless. Um, there's a whole story behind it, but we'll get there another time. When the Vilna Gaon was on his deathbed, he was crying. 
And his student said to him, why are you crying? You're, you're an accomplished scholar. You've done so much, a Jewish leader, a, you're a righteous person. You're clearly going to heaven. You're clearly going to experience God. What are you worried about? You clearly believe in this stuff. You've lived your whole life like this. He says, yeah, I believe. I have no doubts. I know I'm going to heaven. That's not the problem. So, so, so what are you crying about? He says, because when I go to heaven, he says, right now, on earth, I put on tzitzit. I purchase for a couple of pennies. And I'm embracing God. I study a little bit of Torah. I'm embracing God. Shabbat candles, charity, whatever, 613 opportunities to embrace God. All these opportunities to embrace God are meaningless, are, 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 are not available in heaven. It's just my experience. I'm losing out on the essential connection for an experience. It's not worth it. He was saddened by that opportunity on his deathbed. You know, there's a custom that when we go to a cemetery, we tuck in our tzitzit. Because we don't want to, you know, there's these people in the cemetery that can't perform these mitzvot now. They're, ha they're in a good place. Don't get, us, don't get me wrong. They're in a good place in heaven. They're in a comfortable place. And it's an emotionally, intellectually, a beautiful experience. But it's not embracing God the same way that we can. It's just not the same. But don't you have a more deeper embrace of God when you're in heaven? It, so that's our point. It's not, it's not deeper. It's more emotional and intellectual, but it's not, it's not him. Because he can't get, be grasped. Just back to that line we said, no thought can grasp him. Right. So you, if you are grasping him with your thought, it's not the, it's not the essence of him. It's, your, it's our limited perception of him. To, to frame it differently, if our purpose was just to be passionate about God and to understand Him. Why come down to this world in the first place? To do mitzvahs. To do mitzvahs, right? Which means the purpose can't just be our understanding of Him because then we could have just stayed up there and we could have fulfilled our purpose much easier, right? This is actually alluded to later on in chapter 37. Let's jump ahead to page 421. It's the, the thick, the, the bottom bold paragraph. That's, it's, it starts with, and coming into this world. You see it? Mm -hmm. Okay, would anybody like to volunteer? Sure. Okay, go for it. And coming into this world is a very great downgrade for the soul, a real experience of exile. For even if that soul-body combination were to become a complete tzaddik, worshiping God with reverence and great and pleasurable love, that soul wouldn't reach the same level of emotive connection to God, the love and fear that it experienced before coming down to this material world, neither a part of it nor a fraction of it. There is simply no similarity of comparison at all between these two states, as every intelligent person realizes that the body can't contain the same level of emotive connection to God as a soul in heaven. Okay, thank you. So... If the purpose, the purpose of, of our existence can't just be to love God, 
because even if I'm the greatest tzaddik and I totally internalize my soul, it's never going to be the same before as I was in heaven. In heaven, the experience will be much greater no matter how good I am down here. So then what is the purpose of the soul coming down? It can't be just to experience passion. Rather, bottom of page one, uh, 421. Um, rather, um, you want to continue the next paragraph? Sure. So if the soul has nothing to gain from the exile of coming down into a body, then what is the point of this downgrade? In other words, if I'm never going to love God in the same way as I was, as I did in heaven, why come down in the first place? Right. Okay. The soul's downgrade as it is invested into a body and energizing and energizing animal soul is only for the purpose of fixing the body and animal soul and not for the soul's own sake. Okay, thank you. In other words, the soul is on a mission. And it has the opportunity to do, to do mitzvahs to fix the animal soul. Passion, so mitzvahs actually have an impact on the animal soul because your, your godly soul can't do an action, a physical activity, without getting the animal soul involved. So when you physically light the Shabbat candles, when you physically eat the matzah, when you physically um, read the Purim Megillah, whatever it is, whatever mitzvah there, there's, we're, we're going to do, you're engaging the animal soul in this process, making it more holy. And this is embracing the essence of God beyond, far beyond what our own passions can reach. So when we're in heaven, we don't need to, we, we've done all the behavior stuff. Yeah, now you can only, experience it. And now you, you just need that emotional connection. Yes, exactly. hopefully we've done a good job. Exactly. Well, so what the behavior's not needed. What if we haven't? That's, that's well, that's the cleansing process. That's when you're in, in that purgatory part. Because to fix it all when you're... <laughs> well, the, the so cleansing process fixes it, which is... The thing that ties into that, is that why there's like 11 months of Shiva? Because it takes approximately 11 months to fix all that stuff. It, it, well, it could take up to that amount. Right, it to actually that. could take up to 12 months. Right. It says that a totally wicked person takes 12 months. And that's why we do 11 months for of Kaddish. Right. Because we assume that nobody is totally wicked. So most people spend some time in Gehenna. Yeah, it, it's it's not a, it's not like the movies with with the Satan with the pitchfork and the fire and the it it it's it's a cleansing process. So hell is something you fear. Is Gehenna something you fear? We have just a cleansing process. I mean, it's not com it's not comfortable. Person. You know, I, I you know I give my baby a bath, and she doesn't want it. It's not comfortable. It's good for her. She likes it afterwards. It's, we don't have that same fear. Like, you're going to hell. You know, it's not like a punish. It's not exactly. a punishment. Exactly. It's more of like, exactly. you need to experience Exactly. To now, bottom there. line, if hell is going to stop you from sinning, okay, it's not the end of the world. <laughs> so, I'm going to ask something on but a it, personal note then. Yeah. Because my father was, all right, this soul came down a godly soul came down and inhabited a body and this soul his whole life was not a he wasn't a bad man he wasn't a good Jew I mean Judaism came last over everything I mean it was the, like the last thing of importance in his life so therefore when he passed he probably went to this place 
of purgatory, I guess. And so I can have comfort in knowing that his soul has been cleansed instead of holding on to these feelings of not wanting to light a, a, a candle on his yard side. I don't, you know, I always say I'm not going to light a candle on his yard side or just well, my on, mother I'm lighting. On, on the contrary, doing, doing mitzvahs in his honor would... would it, would, the purgatory would process would clean him and then doing, would clean up the soul, as it were. And doing mitzvahs in his honor would help elevate the soul. You know, that, that's the idea of the Kaddish. The Kaddish is in honor of the soul, you know, to, to, to elevate the person. There's a custom that when somebody passes away, a loved one passes away, we study Mishnah. Mishnah is the oral teaching, the oral of the Torah as it's recorded. The word Mishnah has the same letters as the word Neshama, soul. Um, when we study Mishnah in a person's honor, we elevate. There's all these different things that we do to, to, to help our loved ones, 100%. I mean, that's good to know because I wouldn't lie because I didn't feel that he deserved. Yeah, on the, on the contrary. to seeing it now is to help him. Exactly. I mean, exactly. And what about someone that was truly evil? Like someone that did like unspeakable things. Yeah, like Trump. He's not Jewish. So you would assume that it would take the 11 months, but then I'm thinking, well, maybe they don't deserve it at all. Maybe they But, you know, but that's not my place to judge that. But I would imagine that that, that person would, would need those 11 months or 12 Or months. maybe maybe even 12 Right. It's like it's definitely it's a cleansing process. It's not necessarily a clean process. The reason why it's referred to as fire is so the author of the Tanya Al Tarab in one of his other works explains. I'll send it to you. The idea of um, you take silver, you mine silver from the earth. When you mine silver from the earth, you don't get a block of silver or a block of gold. It's this ugly, dirty rock that's deformed. And you have to wash it, you have to scrub it, you have to heat it up in fire. Burn away all the dirt and melt it, reshape it. And now you have this beautiful shiny gold or silver. And it's the same thing with a gem, the soul. It has to go through this fire, so to speak, to kind of heat it up, to reshape it, to cleanse it, to, to, to repolish it. It's not comfortable, but it's not a... It's not much of a punishment as much as it is a, um, a process, a cleansing process. The more mitzvahs that are done in your honor when you're in Gehenna, does that help you get out quicker? It helps, yeah. It, it, it helps with the soul. It helps with its elevation, even, even once it's out to, to, to get better seats. Nobody likes the nosebleed section. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but but the, the ultimate is actually down here on this earth. Let's take a look. We'll, we'll, let's take a look in text one. I find this very, very interesting. Text one, it says Maimonides' Guide to the Perplexed. It's not true. I made a mistake. It's from a book called Hayom Yom. And we'll conclude with this. It says, Many years before the Al Tadeb's imprisonment in Petersburg, in the year 19, uh, 1798, the Altarebbe was imprisoned for teaching Judaism in Tsarist Russia, which was frowned upon. 
He once came out of his private quarters to where the Hasidim were gathered, and he said, In Gan Eden, in paradise, in heaven, they sense the preciousness of this lowly world. What we experience, what we see this world as lowly, they see it as precious. Not only the ministering angels, but even the earliest emanations would forego everything for one response to, in the synagogue, Amen Yeheshmi Rabbah, right, to recite Amen to the Kaddish. Just to recite Amen to Kaddish, they would give up everything for that. Right? If they reciting Amen said by a Jew with all of his power, meaning with full concentration, being totally immersed and involved in these words. They, all the souls, the angels, everything in heaven, they're experiencing on an emotional level the, the beauty and the intellect, the emotions of God. But they're not getting the essence of God. We get that in this world, and they would give up everything for that. This was all said. The effect that he kindled such a flame and such a burning enthusiasm in all who heard that for a full year they would recite Amen with passion in the synagogue. They were all inspired by this, um, by his little... That's the behavior. That's the behavior. That's the behavior, yeah. Reciting Amen in the synagogue. And this, the truth is with any mitzvah, we just feel like we're doing a traditional act, but there's actually an impact, a relationship that's being formed in this world beyond anything that we can experience. He concludes the chapter, and I'll conclude with this, he just concludes with an analogy. You know, you study Torah, you do a mitzvah, it doesn't look like God. It looks like I'm just doing something. It looks like I'm studying random words. So he gives an analogy, you hug the king, you embrace the king. And it doesn't matter how many garments the king is, is wearing. You're embracing him. If the king is wearing a thousand robes and you're embracing him like this and you don't even see him, you still demonstrated a relationship. You still embraced him. God often wears garments. He wears clothing. He dresses himself up inside a mitzvah, inside the Torah. But as soon as we embrace him and he embraces us, the relationship is there even if we don't see it. That's my story and I'm sticking to it.